Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, um, we ask for you to, to lift, um, lift it from being just words on a page to it being um, a truth that we can live out. Uh, we thank you for the witness um, that John bore to, to you, uh, to your enduring plan for this world. Uh, we thank you that we can receive the same witness that John uh, saw as well. Father, we just ask by your spirit that you would be speaking to us in your word this morning. Amen. Well, as we come to the... This, is, this will be the last song of Revelation, actually. Um, and this song, um, again, Revelation doesn't mince its words, does it? It's probably... That Bible reading has probably left us with a few questions questions. What on earth is this all about? But well, I want to start with a question uh, that I think will frame what, what the text is really talking about. And the question is, would you consider yourself a faithful person? Would you consider yourself someone who sticks it out through thick and thin? Um, someone who's there for the devastating losses? Someone who's there for the ecstatic joys? Would you consider yourself a faithful person? Because no matter your creed or your colour, being faithful is something to, to aim for, isn't it? It's, it's, it's something that is good. Um, being faithful to a cause, whether that is relationships with charities, um, justice, uh, sports even, being faithful is a good thing. You can, people, people can see the good in you when you're faithful, when you stick it out through thick and thin. Faithful workers often get rewarded um, you follow a schedule, a training schedule, faithfully, um, and you'll get what you're training for. But there's also the thin edge of the wedge, isn't there, in living faithfully. Being faithful is costly. It's hard. It can leave you misunderstood at times. People think, what on earth are you going, or are you doing that for? Or why are you going about it in such a way? And I don't think... Um, I don't think that cost just comes out of nowhere either. Often what being faithful looks like is knowing exactly what you're getting yourself into, but then going and doing it anyway. And I raised this, what, whether you consider yourself a faithful person, because a big message of Revelation is the possibility of our faithfulness to God through the judgment and justice that he brings as he wraps his creation project up. Revelation makes it clear that it is because of God's faithfulness to us that we can be faithful to him, that we can be faithful people. Why is that important? Well, despite our best efforts and because of our worst, we all know that we don't live in a world where faithfulness is just the norm, right? We live in an unfaithful world. We live where people change their mind, change their words, change what they do. And no matter how we nuance it or be tempted to see the grey in things, Revelation challenges us. I think scripture as a whole challenges us to see that there is faithfulness to God and then there is unfaithfulness. All that we can consider as faithful living falls under the banner of who God is. It's like um, 
one of my favorite artists, Bob Dylan, when he went through his born again phase, slow train coming, I don't know if maybe, wrong generation, that's all right. Um, he's got this line in slow train coming, you've either got faith or you've got unbelief. There ain't no neutral ground. And this is the claim of revelation, that any reward, any ability to be faithful doesn't come of our own efforts, but it's only achieved by Jesus. That there is victory in the end, but it doesn't belong to us, it belongs to the Lamb who was slain. And so as we live out what it means to be people who look forward to the end, when victory will be won overwhelmingly, we look to the self-giving, sacrificial way of the lamb who was slain, rather than the self-serving, grab-what-you-can way of the world. So we're going to talk about faithfulness this morning. We're going to talk about it in three ways. What it, what it means to be faithful, part one. What it means to be faithful, part two. And how can we know that we are faithful, part three. So what does it mean to be faithful? Um, I encourage you, if you've got your Bible with you to, to follow along with me. I'm reading from the NIV, um, but any, anything else you've got, if it's the Bible. Um, so what does it mean to be faithful? In the first three, chapter, first three verses, sorry, John's vision in Revelation paints a picture of God and us as lovers. John begins with the phrase used throughout Revelation where he says, after this, uh, which is really giving more detail of what he sees in this vision. And what he sees is a great multitude. Um, we instinctively, don't we all, we instinctively chap think of chapter 7 where you have the great multitude, every tribe, tongue, uh, and nation. And they're singing, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. John's in the habit of making these big statements in Revelation, or at least recording what he hears, that, that God is in the center of everything, and that everything belongs to God. Why the constant reminding? Could it be that we, we need the constant reminding that God is in the center, and that everything comes from him? And we need this because what it means to be faithful is always experienced in our unfaithful world. This is why in verse 2, God is praised because he has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. I think we might need a pause on this one. Right? John's got some explaining to do. What does this mean? Why is he, why is he using this language? Is John just being deliberately provocative um, to, to get people going? I don't think so. I think John's, um, like I said, there's nothing new in the book of Revelations. John is using it in an image that's talked about throughout the Bible. And this is what I mean when I say that what it means to be faithful is the fact that God is a lover, and so are we. When I say that, um, I like to start from the beginning. What does it mean to love someone? What does it mean to love something? I think fundamentally, it means to give yourself away, to give something of yourself to someone else, to something else. And I think if we were to think about who God is and what he's done, we would see God as a lover, wouldn't we? 
from the very beginning, God is someone who creates. He gives us his image. He gives us his breath in our lungs. He gives us his creation to steward over. He, God gives himself to us. And in this way, he loves us. And the, and the story of the Bible is that God keeps loving his people. He keeps giving himself to his people. Think about the story of Israel's escape from Egypt um, or the Prince of Egypt, whatever is your um, kind of touchstone for that. What's the, what's the Exodus story apart from two lovers, God and his people, eloping through opposition? I say this because through the witness of Israel's scripture, God is painted as a husband. We understand God as someone who cares for his people. Jeremiah, the prophet in the Old Testament, he says that Israel was the loving bride of God even as they walked through the wilderness. So if we can see that God loves us by giving himself to us, it makes sense that because God has loved us, then we too know what it is to be a lover, what it is to give ourselves away. And here is, I think, the key distinction between um, whatever the world might have to say about love uh, and what, what the Bible actually says about love. Because being a lover isn't reserved for marriage. It isn't a privilege afforded to some. It's the unmistakable mark of our maker in all of us which I think is why it's tragic and why, why Revelation paints it so tragically when our love is misplaced. The, the, tragedy, the, the tragedy of the world, the fall of the world, is not that we are incapable of loving, that we don't love. The tragedy is that we don't love God. We don't love the right thing. Because God has given himself to us. He's loved us with his whole being. And then we go and we take that love, because we know what love is, and we, we tend to love what isn't God. We use God's love to satisfy ourselves rather than accepting his love as satisfying. Can you see how that might make us unfaithful in our love? It's like that quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, who talks about our desires, and he says, we're half-hearted creatures. We're fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies because they cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. The tragedy is not that we don't love. The tragedy is that we don't love God. And the, the prophets, Israel knew this before Jesus. In the same chapter as I quoted before, the prophet Jeremiah, when he gives his people the word of God, he tells them that they were like a prostitute. When they refused their God, they were unfaithful. They used God's love. Just to be clear, I don't think the Bible means that a prostitute is more unfaithful than anyone else, just by virtue of being one. Rather, I think within the image of God loving his people, this, this kind of marriage image, prostitution reflects what it means to be unfaithful. It reflects the hurt and the pain caused to God as he sees his love used and abused by us. And so this is where we see John's image of a prostitute coming from. 
the unfaithful act of using God's love given to us to satisfy ourselves. Except John goes one step further. Uh, He's not talking just about our individual unfaithfulness. He's given a whole city the title of prostitute. It's not in chapter 19, but in chapter 18, there's a city called Babylon. I don't know if that sends any alarm bells ringing for you just by that word, Babylon. But Babylon is a great city. It's, it's filled with all of these things that God has given it. God um, has, has loved it by giving it um, culture, trade, ideas, gardens, foods, things like clubs, arts, all these things that God has given to the city. But it's used by the people, it's used by the city to satisfy themselves at the expense of God, at the expense of others, at the expense of the earth. And so instead of this city being a blessing, it's a corruption. This prostitute of a city has corrupted the earth by using what God has given out of his love unfaithfully. I don't know if you were here last week. It's kind of what Thomas was talking about at the Tower of Babel. Here are people trying to provide security for themselves, trying to make a name for themselves, to put themselves ahead of others and of God. In other words, here are a people who are concerned with making their own salvation, their own glory, and their own power. Do you see why we need the reminder that God is in the center of everything and everything comes from God? It's because we tend to forget it. So if we return to the question of what does it mean to be faithful and we return to the text, it means for God, condemning calling out unfaithfulness, to be true to himself. See, on earth as is above, God lets people see that salvation and glory and power belong to him. And this is in part by his condemnation. This is in um, verse 2. His condemnation and his vengeance. I think for us, as we join in with everyone who sees what's going on in this heavenly scene... It means that it's God who has the salvation, the glory, and the power. It's God who is condemning. It's God who is avenging. And I've been thinking about this this week. Every time I drive across the new Peddler Creek Bridge, um, isn't it obvious which bridge is condemned? Apparently, it should have been obvious sooner than it was. But it's obvious that someone has made the call and this bridge is no longer worthy of driving across. It might still stand. It's not in working order. To drive across it would be unfaithful to the bridge that's been built for us. In a sense, just like Babylon, the smoke has gone up from it. It's obvious that this bridge has been condemned. It's dead in the water. And just like Babylon, there's a time where this bridge will be completely condemned. This is the same with the unfaithfulness of the world. We can can actually see what is unfaithful to God because the smoke has gone up from it. It's been condemned. And the smoke will keep going. It'll continue to be condemned. 
And so here is the first song of praise, that God has shown us who he is by demonstrating what causes aren't faithful to him. God is a faithful lover, and we aren't. That's what it means to be faithful, in a sense. That doesn't really help us, does it? If we know that God is faithful and we aren't, that's, I don't know, coal to Newcastle or something like that. We need a part two, don't we? We, we need to know what does it mean for us to be faithful? Can we be faithful? And I began by talking about how good it is to be faithful to a cause. Charity, sporting, justice, um, whatever your cause is, relationships. If we're going to be faithful to God's cause, what, what, what is God's cause that we're going we're gonna to put ourselves to? Is God this just some kind of big idea that is just kind of milling all around and we, you know, that, that's the cause, is some kind of intellectual exercise? I think a better question to ask is who is God's cause? Because what the text says is that Jesus is God's cause. And we know this because on one hand, he's God's love, he's the love of God, and on the other, he is someone who loves God. Think about Jaya introducing, leading us in a, in a call to worship this morning, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he sent, that he gave his only son. Jesus is the one who shows us God's love, but then he is also the one who responds perfectly to the love of God. And we see this in the text when all of creation, um, in verse 4, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they agree. That's what amen means. It's truly, I agree. And they praise God, hallelujah, because he's faithful despite all of the unfaithfulness in the world. And then we get on to another song. A voice came from the throne. We don't, we don't know who the voice is. It's a voice. Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, both great and small. He's saying, you who are faithful, you know the drill. Give yourself to God. Love God. Be faithful to God. But how? Well, amongst this, there's another great multitude representing the whole earth who shout back in agreement, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder. They say, hallelujah, praise God. So praise God means hallelujah. Hallelujah means praise God. This line, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. They're saying the power over others, ultimate authority belongs to God. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Let's give, him, let's give God full credit because everything comes from him. And why? Why are we giving him full credit? For the wedding of the Lamb has come. Salvation is here. See, if, if Babylon, if this unfaithful city is the embodiment of people's use and abuse of God's love in our communities our adultery to God, then the wedding of the Lamb is God's vow renewal. It's God's constant faithfulness in the face of unfaithfulness. 
God doesn't just reveal himself to condemn misguided lovers. He comes to renew the vow between himself and his people. He comes to make a commitment to you and to me that he will never leave you nor forsake you, that he's with you to the very end of the age. I think the beautiful thing about God's vow is it's, it's not just words spoken, it's a life lived. God doesn't just um, wed us, it's almost as though God has welded himself to us, to humanity. Oops, sorry. In, he's welded himself to us in humanity in Jesus, who takes on flesh who is human, to live with us, to die for us, and to be raised to show us the depths of God's love. A love that was always there from the beginning, but now has been given to us in another person's life, in the life of Jesus. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the love of God and a perfect lover of God who grants us faithfulness that defies sin and death and the unfaithfulness of the world. I think God can never not be human ever since Jesus came. So I want to stop here and think about if God has committed himself to us in Jesus, what does this mean for us? What does this look like for our relationships? Because if, if we're here this morning and we're vowed, if we're committed to Jesus, just as he has committed himself to us, then we see that Jesus is God's love and he shows us how to love. Everything else just simply reflects what God has given to us first. This means that our marriages, as holy and as good as they are, are not the only way to know what it means to love God. It means that marriage has been given to us as a gift to reflect God's love. It means that God's love is truly present with anyone who is alive in Jesus. The thought of finding your person in marriage is not, is not our purpose. Our purpose is to be with God's. Um, like in Christ alone said, for I am his and he is mine. That's our purpose. And I, and I say this because I, I don't think the church as a whole, historically, um, not always has done a great job of living this out. Um, people slip through the cracks. We, we put marriage up on such a high pedestal uh, that anything else is failure. We at times we make an idol out of marriage by failing to recognize first and foremost that we know true love because God has committed himself to us in Jesus. And the reason why I, I paused on what it might look like to understand God's love is because John makes it clear that we actually have something to do with it we have something to do with God's love. We're not just here to sit back and soak it up. We are actually to love in the same way that God has loved us, by giving ourselves away 
in the same way that God has given himself to us. Christ's bride, you and I, as uncomfortable as that is for a man, um, that's, that's why it's reassuring that it's in an image, um, we've made ourselves ready. Where's that? Verse 7, the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. With fine linen, we've put on clothes of lion, fine linen, we've put on a new life in Jesus. We've started to do the things given to us so that we can be faithful to Jesus. This is what it means by fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. God gives us righteous acts to do so that we can be faithful to Jesus. He doesn't leave us on our own. We can be confident that Jesus is the faithfulness of God and that he is faithful to God. He has come committing himself to us. That God's vows are renewed for us and that we can be lovers of God and lovers of people just as Jesus himself is. We have a part to play in being faithful to Jesus because God loved us first in Jesus. That's what it means to be faithful. <clears throat> so if, if Revelation, if this song has given us a picture of what it means for God to be faithful, what it means for us to be faithful, how do we know if we're faithful? Right? How, can we, how can we measure it? How can we test it? What, what assurance do we have? We continue on in verse 9. John's told to write, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Here is perhaps one of the, one of the central messages of Revelation. As we end our time in it together, this is, this is the last song of Revelation. That Jesus has won and that those who are faithful to him will be kept safe to the very end, and there will be an end, through trouble, danger, and even death. And in this, the good news is that we can love God, that we can love others, we can give ourselves freely and be sure that we're faithful, and we can be sure of it because we carry Jesus with us. This is what it means to be invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we know this because in verse 10, when John's overcome by these things, um, he, he ends, so at this, I fell at his feet to worship him. He ends up worshipping the messenger. You know that saying, don't shoot the messenger. It should add, don't worship the messenger either. Um, he's quickly told to knock it off. Don't do that. Um, and worship God instead. Because I'm, the angel says, I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. How do we know we are faithful? Because it is the spirit who bears testimony to Jesus. Who is this spirit? He is the third person of God. He is the Holy Spirit who lives in us and teaches Jesus to us. He speaks Jesus to us. 
This is how we can be sure that we're faithful, that Jesus has overcome, and that those who are faithful to him will be kept safe to the very end through trouble, danger, and even death because we carry God's vow with us. We carry the Spirit who speaks Jesus to us. As much as we might like to to paint the Spirit in pictures of um, a dove or wind, I think it's more appropriate to think about how we know the Spirit, because the Spirit is the personal presence of God within you. If you're alive in Christ, who knows you, who speaks to you. So if we, if we can be sure that we're faithful because we carry God's vow with us in the Spirit, who speaks Jesus to us, how can we be sure or how can we hear the Holy Spirit speak Jesus to us? This is where I want to return to what it might look like um, to live, to be faithful in an unfaithful world to live in Babylon. Because there's, if not your whole life, there there are going to be times in your life where you're confronted with the unfaithfulness of the world. It's clear that you're in Babylon. But what might not be so clear is exactly what you should do about it. So you might see it in others. You might even see that unfaithfulness of the world in yourself. You can be sure that you're seeing people abusing God's self-giving love for the sake of satisfying themselves. And this isn't our judgment. Uh, Like in in verse 2, we know this because God has made it clear that he's condemned it. Both now and forever, it's clear that the unfaithfulness of the world is unfaithful to God. But just like John, we're called to be faithful to God's cause. We're called to hold to the testimony of Jesus, to worship God. So when you're surrounded by the unfaithfulness of the world, when you're aware that it's been condemned, what do you do? Where do you go? How do you start? You can start by the assurance that as you are, if you are alive in Christ, that you can be faithful to God that he has committed himself to you and he's made sure that there are faithful actions to do in any and every situation. And you can allow yourself to hear the Holy Spirit, the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. I was thinking about how we live in a very noisy world and often when we want to hear what we want to hear. There's other things that need to be turned down. As a kid growing up, loved listening to music. I had a big stereo in my room. But the rule was, you can't have two sets of music going on in the house at once. And uh, it was often, it was often mum's music that won, won out. But maybe that's true of how we hear God too. Maybe there's a whole lot of ourselves. Maybe there's a whole lot of the world that needs quietening down before we can truly um, receive and hear God. And so I've just got a couple of suggestions in no particular order about what it might look like to, to continue to worship God by bearing witness, by hearing the Holy Spirit. 
the spirit of prophecy who speaks Jesus to us. Here are three suggestions in no particular order. So as you pray, I don't know what your, your prayer habits are, have you ever just brought yourself to God and not, not prayed anything but sat in silence with God in a posture of waiting to receive him? It's not something that we really do, is it? Just sit in the quiet and, and, and allow God to speak to us in our prayers to him. And I say this not as a, as a secret formula or a, a special power, but I say this as an attitude of receiving God, of hearing from him rather than making sure that he can hear you. What about when you worship God? Do you ask the Spirit to do his work when you worship God? When you read the Bible, do you ask God for his Spirit to lift the words from the page, make them like fire in your bones? When you gather for worship, maybe it's here on a Sunday, maybe it's in a small group, maybe it's a personal time of worship or um, gathered with other Christians, are you, do you make sure that you're not reliant on just an order of service, like this order of service that hasn't changed since the last Ice Age? Um, do you instead rely on the Spirit who is present with you, present with us? One thing I notice about um, our bands as we pray, and one thing that I'm really grateful for is we do, we, we, we ask the Spirit to do his work of of, of unity of the church and of testifying to Jesus, speaking the truth about Jesus in what people have to say and how we go about living with each other. Do you name the Holy Spirit? Are you, are you bold enough to, to, to give him credit where credit is due? The Spirit is inside of all of us and he's, he's talking about Jesus non-stop. So do we stop with others when we're, when we're talking through our lives and say, that sounds like the Holy Spirit because it sounds like Jesus? Have you paid attention to the Spirit's work in your own life? Have you maybe reached out and asked about the way that the Holy Spirit has done work in others' life? See, to, to, be, to be faithful in a world that's unfaithful, I can't stand up here and tell you whether you should stay or whether you should go, whether you should speak up or whether you should carry on. But there is one who can lead you through it. Jesus, the one who God has made his commitment to you in. It's up to us to accept the Holy Spirit's testimony about Jesus by faith, and live faithfully with him. Because revelation is a vision of the end. There's, there's finality about it. It's the end of evil. It's the end of suffering. It's also the end of evildoers and the end of those who make others suffer. But it's also about the end of God's love, not where it runs out, but the place that it belongs what it means to be faithful to God, to love him with your whole heart. 
So the vision of the end of Revelation is not a specific time or place that we could ever know. There, there, is, there is that, but we aren't to know it. What we are to know is the life that is given to us in Jesus. Because our times will change. Our circumstances will change as well. And to add to that, there will come a time then what then there will come a time when what Jesus has started will come to its completion. But the assurance of God of John's vision is that God is on the throne, that Christ has defeated death, and that those who trust in Jesus and live faithfully will endure through operate through opposition, despair, and even death itself. As Jesus said, it's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end.